Well, this past week I was reading through Time magazine, and I read an, an interesting article called Working in the Clouds. Assistance program creates a miracle in southwest China's Tibet autonomous region. Now, any story that has the word miracle in its title is going to get my attention. And as I read this story, the miracle that it referred to was actually the work that was being done by a Beijing man named Liang Nanyu, who traveled thousands of miles away from his home to Shangyu County in Tibet's autonomous region. Now, Shangyu is the highest county in all the world. Most of Shangyu is about 5,000 meters above sea level. The average life expectancy there is only 58, and 21.9% of its population live well below the poverty line. I sat at the Springfield Regional Medical Center as I, I read this story surrounded by uh, all the latest in, in medical equipment. And as I read about this Shangyu province, or this Shangyu county, they lacked surgical equipment that worked. They didn't have any physicians even in their regional hospital. If a woman went into a difficult labor, she had to go on a seven-hour journey across 342 difficult miles to find help. Less than 10% of the children in Shangyu County were able to attend the school in the larger villages or cities. And Shang Liang, he dedicated three years of his life to living in the clouds in this highest county on earth. And since the time that he's been there, in these three years that he's worked, 25 children have been able to go to school. Because of his appeal for aid, the very first C-section done at the highest uh, altitude on the earth has been done. Doctors have been brought in. Uh, those that suffered in poverty have seen a boost because of the local shrimp brine industry that he's helped spur on in his three years of service. And the interesting thing is, because of the altitude, anyone traveling to help this poorest place on earth is only allowed to stay for three years. Three years of exposure to the level at which most of these people live leads to high blood pressure, hyperlipidemia, hyperuricemia, bone degradation, insomnia, and cluster headaches because of the thinness and the lack of oxygen. His personal sacrifice, his personal commitment for those three years to help these people is what Time Magazine dubbed a miracle. And I thought about that, and, and I realized while his commitment and sacrifice should be gratefully noted, they pale in comparison to the one who left his eternal home. Not for three years, but rather for 33 years upon this earth. He descended into a much thinner atmosphere of hopelessness and sinfulness, darkness and death. The distance for anyone to receive help in the Shangyu province is a seven-hour, 342-mile journey, but he traveled one that spanned eternity, that spanned the heavens because sin created an uncrossable chasm between created man and creator. His ministry, like Liang's, it spanned three years, not because of a government program that allowed him to be here, but because of the Heavenly Father's heart, whose desire was for a relationship with his estranged children. Three years of exposure in ministry didn't lead to high blood pressure or bone degradation or insomnia or headaches, but rather it resulted in the blinded violence of a crowd crying, crucify, crucify. It cost him not discomfort, 
It cost him his life. And the benefits, the effect of his life, friends, changes everything. Because Jesus is truly the miracle we all need. His light, his ministry, the change and transformation that he offers to each one of us in the relationship with him, that's the miracle. And so, when we pray in his name, we pray to the Heavenly Father, even as David did back in Psalm 138, in verse 3. When I called to you, you answered me, and you greatly emboldened me. May all the kings of the earth praise you, Lord, when they hear what you have decreed. May they sing of the ways of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord is great. And though the Lord is exalted, verse 6, he looks kindly on the lowly. Though lofty, he sees them from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes, and with your right hand, you save me. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Now last week, my sermon, I ended it abruptly uh, because of, of where my heart was, and I shared an outline with you, uh, and I want to complete that this week, if that's okay. Uh, you can outline or schedule uh, words that a preacher wants to say, but you can't outline what the Holy Spirit always leads you to say or the time He gives to you to speak. And So I'm going to pick up where we left off last week and, and note how when we pray, yes, we do expect God to hear and answer. But the second thing on your outline that we just kind of skimmed across at the end was we expect God to inspire us with boldness when we pray. David did. did. Did you catch it in verse 3? He said, when I called God, you answered me. You greatly emboldened me. The contemporary songwriter says, I don't want to miss one word you speak because everything you say is life to me. I don't want to miss one word you speak, so quiet my heart. Lord, I'm listening. Prayer was the reset button of David's life. When he was afraid, when he lacked courage to risk for God, when he lacked the confidence, it was God's answer in prayer that emboldened him, that, that filled him with a holy passion to live for him in, in the now. And friends, we may be weak, but through the Spirit, we're strong. And God is strong within us. And our flesh may fail, but the psalmist would acknowledge God never will. You step back with me, if you would, into Elijah's sandals. Last week we left him by the brook, and God said to him, essentially, Elijah, if you trust me, if you will be obedient to me, Elijah, I'm going to call you to a life that is unlike anything you have ever seen. I'm going to do things through you and for you that will blow your mind, that are hard for you to even imagine right now. But I want you to listen to me, Elijah, and I'll show you the way in which you should live. And Elijah did. He followed the Lord with his heart. But then in 1 Kings 17, 7, the Bible says sometime later, the brook dried up. God's provision for him to live where he was seemed to dwindle away. And last week I challenged the old saying, and maybe some of you did grow up with it, and I, and I kind of like how it sounds, but it's just not 100% accurate. And it was the saying that, that the center of God's will is the safest place to be. But if you remember from last week, I think we agreed that it should be corrected to say the center of God's will, it's not the safest place to be. 
but it is the best place to be. And frankly, if, if you have lived as a Christian for any amount of time, you know that to be true. Because we have a God that constantly stretches us beyond what we're comfortable with. And, and maybe you've heard some of these other promises your whole life. And people have reminded you of things like, you know, God is for you, not against you. And that's true. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 8.31, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Things like God has a plan and a purpose for your life, which is true. Or maybe they've told you God is always with you and he will never leave you. And thank God that's true. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And they've told you God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good, and it's true. But right now, you might be looking at your life. You might be standing before a brook that's drying up, or years of waiting on the Lord, and you're wondering if God really does understand you, if he really does care about what's going on within your body, within your heart, within your family, within your life. And have you ever had somebody tell you, God will never give you more than you can handle? Friends, people have told me that all the time, even in these past two weeks of caring for my 90-year-old mom in the hospital. And anytime life faces some serious ups and downs, people will say that. God will never give you more than you can handle. And I've heard great saints say, well, I just wish God didn't have so much faith in me that he gives me so much. And invariably what someone will quote to me is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the Bible says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. But when you're tempted, he'll also provide a way out or an escape so that you can stand up under it or endure it. And friends, I want you to know that has nothing to do with the painful circumstances we're talking about. It has nothing to do with waiting for God's answer to prayer or suffering or, or the burdens sometimes that God places on our hearts. It's talking about temptation. And what it's saying is God's will will never lead you into any condition where the only choice you have is to sin. He will always provide a better choice, a way out from that temptation. That's what that verse says. It doesn't say God will never give you more than you could handle. In fact, if you know the Bible, if you read account after account, if you look at the pages of your history, of your life, you know the truth. God gives you loads more than you can handle. And I know that doesn't sound cute. I know it doesn't fit on a coffee mug or a bumper sticker, but it's true. If you expect God to answer prayers, and friends, if you expect God to embolden you and fill you with, with that enthusiasm for him, God will lead you to brook after brook after brook that will dry up. And you will be in a season within your life of waiting. You'll be in a season of change and of wondering because God's much more concerned with who you are and who you are becoming than he is with your comfort than he is with maintaining the status quo of your work or your family or your life. Now, how long will that dry season last? I don't know. 
How painful will it be? I don't know, but I know it hurts just like you do. And I know sometimes it's not fun, but I do believe this, that if you trust God, you will find that God is great and God is truly good. I was reading this past week the story of William Cowper, great hymn writer, great songwriter, but he was a man whose life was filled with a lot of darkness and despair. And because of the losses in his family and his life, it was on one bleak morning he decided he was going to end his life by drinking poison. But he didn't drink enough, and he survived. A few days later, he hired a coachman to take him to a bridge over the River Thames, and he'd planned to jump off and drown and end his life, but something held him back on the bridge that day. A few days later, he fell on a kitchen knife to take his life, but it broke on his sternum, and with the, except for the, the, the cut that was caused there, he survived that. A few days later, he hung himself, but his neighbors found him unconscious and revived him, and he survived. He finally decided that perhaps it wasn't right for him to do this, and he wasn't going to commit suicide, and yet in despair, he picked up a copy of the Bible, and he began to read not through the Gospels, not from the book of Genesis like a lot of us do when we pick up the Bible. He began to read through the book of Romans. And he found near the grace and the forgiveness and the heart of God for us. And he read passages like you and I refer to so often, like Romans 8, 28, that that all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose. And he gave his life to the God of the universe. He became a Christian. And even though his life was rewarding, the darkness, the dark times, and even the depression in his life never completely left him. But he summarized all of his life's experience by by writing these words. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs. God works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, take courage, take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings over your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. For behind what you see is a frowning countenance, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. And the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain, for God is his own interpreter, and God will make it plain. We come to the Lord believing he will hear and answer our prayer, and he inspires us with a greater boldness. I love what 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 8 says. He talks about the trials that we endure and the pain. He says this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. But these have come so that come coming? These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor. When Jesus Christ is revealed, and friends, he will be revealed. The return of our Lord is very near, and so as we hear disconcerting news of missile tests in North Korea, when we hear 
tales of, of, of how the earth is warming. And we think of all the dangers that, that lie before the young people in our future. It's simply signposts along the way that God's glory is starting to break through. And when it does become fully revealed, then we will understand when it comes to expecting God to answer our prayers, He not only hears and answers, He not only gives us a boldness with which to live this life, but then it leads me to my last point this morning, and that is life matters. I expect in my prayers and in my submission to God that my life will count for something when God is in control. In other words, it's the cry of of every follower and believer's heart. Tell me that faith is true. Tell me that prayer means something. Tell me God wants to work through the simple thing of my prayers to create a life of, of meaning and impact. Tell me that God can use me to create some ripples in the pool of this life. We are told, friends, repeatedly in Scripture, as in Proverbs 3, 6, in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. But there are many times as we seek to know that our lives count for something, that there will be things that happen that have no logical, no no human explanation. Bob Benson wrote a lot of beautiful poems and stories and books. He, he's a skilled author, and he was a humorous and heartwarming speaker. He was the kind of man that if you heard him once, you wanted to hear him again. In fact, a lot of his things are on, on YouTube still, but Bob developed throat cancer. He was told because of that in its advanced stage he wouldn't have long to live. Now, God saw fit to give Bob Benson 13 additional years of life, and in those 13 years... He wrote many books that touched thousands of lives, but the cancer came back. The cancer resurfaced, and within a few months, Bob Benson died in his early 50s. Everyone that knew him, everyone that came past his family that day said he had so much more to give, so much more to contribute. And it's a reminder that it's hard to understand sometimes God's will. If I were in charge of the universe, good people would live well past 100. The evil, the bad people, they're the ones whose lives would be cut short at 50. Every Sunday in the Lord's house would be a time of fantastic celebration, and a dozen people at least would be baptized every Sunday into the Lord. Every Christian would be happy and healthy and connected. Every truth of God would be easily understood. Every day would be a perfect day but God's ways are not my ways. God's thoughts are not my thoughts. And the scripture says in Psalm 115, 3, our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. The God to whom we pray, friends, is in charge of the world. And I just want to say, aren't you glad that he is? Because we would certainly make a mess of things. Sometimes heaven's plans make no earthly sense, and that's why we are called to walk by faith, not by sight. But be assured, your life, it counts for something when God is in charge. God has a vantage point from which he does work all things together for good. Think about Elijah once again as prophets go. He was the prophet par excellent for the Jewish people. He was one of the greatest But Elijah was often hungry. (laughs) Elijah was often thirsty. He was often scared. 
Elijah was often on the run for his life. He, he dealt with deep depression. But did his life count for something? Well, a widow and her son in Zarephath would say, yes. Thousands of Israelites who, who gained a personal relationship with the great Holy One of Israel would say yes. And after long seasons of praying and waiting, and waiting to see God's response, after a lot of wondering, does my life count for something in you? Do my prayers really matter? It would be all the way in the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke in the first chapter that a man named Zechariah would get a visit from the angel Gabriel who would tell him, you're going to have a son. And then we're going to have you name him John. And he's going to come in the spirit of Elijah. His life was still making ripples. When James, the half-brother of Jesus, was writing his book in the New Testament, and he was searching for that perfect illustration outside the life of Christ, what prayer was life like, he settled on one man, Elijah. James 5.16, he said, The prayer of a righteous person, it's powerful and it's effective. Elijah was a human being. He said, even as we are, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Now if you know anything about the life of Elijah, you've got this great contest on Mount Carmel. You've got the great prophecies and interactions of the dead coming back to life, all the way up to Elisha, his, his right-hand man, taking his mantle when he was taken up to heaven in, in, a, in a chariot of fire. You could pick any of those things to highlight what this man was like, but what stood out the most in James's mind, he prayed. And the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah's trust in God made a difference even when circumstances did not go his way. I think of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He would never allow hardships or difficulties to rob him of his faith or his joy in God. He would tell everyone, rejoice in the Lord. And I'll say it again, rejoice. He was traveling and making his way to Jerusalem on his last mission trip. He was warned repeatedly about the dangers that waited there for him. His ship would land in Phoenicia at the city of Tyre and the Christians would come and they would tell him, please don't go to Jerusalem. Even when his ship docked at Caesarea, they would do the same. And a prophet by the name of Agabus came out of Jerusalem all the way just to meet Paul. And he reached over and took his belt out and he bound his hands and feet. And Acts 21.11 says, uh, he said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And then I picture him unbanding that belt and giving it back to, to Paul and, and walking away. Everyone pled with him, don't go. Don't go. The great reformer Martin Luther was warned, don't go to your final meeting with the church authorities because they want one thing, and that's to end your life. And Martin Luther responded by saying, though devils be as many as tiles on the roof, yet thither will I go, here I stand, and I can do no other. A life emboldened by the Spirit. And friends, don't get me wrong. These men prayed for the deliverance of God. 
These men prayed for the, the boldness of God, and yet as they waited, I'm sure they've asked God the questions we've all asked. God, why? Why send this man with this object lesson? Why send me to Jerusalem where nothing but danger awaits me? And I've prayed, God, why would you allow confusion in the mind and the heart of one who has loved you all her life? God, why do you allow the hurt, the hunger, the heartache in my life before you choose to move? Why would you do that? And friends, I try really hard in my own life not to presume to know why God does anything because better than half the time, I'm going to be wrong. God has a bigger plan in mind. God has a, some long-term action in store that I'm not privy to. But what I have to believe is that through all those difficult seasons of life, God is getting my full attention. And I wish I could tell you that, that when everything's going great within my life, that God always has my attention. But it's not true. And it's in those times when the brook has run dry, when things have been difficult and hard and painful, that God gains my full surrender to him. And in that moment, I have to admit, those are the times he changes my life. He grows my spirit the most. Because I have a tendency personally to look more at the blessings than the blesser. I have a tendency to see the good gifts more than the one who gives the gifts. And maybe the reason you're here today is to hear these last few things. One is, you know, just because your dream is delayed, it does not mean it's denied. Just because you prayed for something and you haven't seen the result of that doesn't mean God is saying, no way. Not now, not ever in your life. God still does miracles. And the hope that we're really looking for, friends... It comes not only from trusting in God's power. If we're looking for God's power, if we're looking for God's comfort, friends, it means we also have to trust in God's calendar. And I know that's not always easy. I could put it another way on your outline there, and that is, is most of us, we want God's promises, but we don't want God's process. We want his promises, but we don't always like the process through which those promises are answered. But there's always a purpose to the process. And so in our culture, when we see someone waiting, we think that they're wasting time. But friends, what we need to understand is in God's economy, waiting in answer to prayer, it's never a waste of time. Because it's in the waiting and in the prayer that we are formed and we are shaped. Now, as last week, I could end my sermon here, and, and yet you've got three more things here on your outline. and I really want to give these to you to kind of help uh, increase the stick to of, of what prayer can do and be for each one of us. So let me go through these really quickly. Uh, number one, if you're in a season of waiting, if you're in a season of the brook drying up in your life, remember God's faithfulness. Remember God's faithfulness. I've heard it this way before. If you don't find a way to celebrate God in your past, you will never trust God with your future. If you can sit down and not reflect and think of something good that God has done in your past, you'll never trust him with your future. Think about the time that you were literally knocked down to the floor and you thought you'd never get up. But God raised you to your knees or to your feet. Think about the time that, that, that you or someone you love was, was sick almost to the point of death and God brought healing in their life. 
Think about a time when you thought you would be alone and God provided brothers or sisters in Christ or a family member stepped in and God provided that. And if you're always thinking, I'm going to be alone, I'm always going to suffer, will you ever trust God with your future? Number two, respond with gratitude. And I know it's tough because maybe you're waiting for someone to love. Maybe you're waiting for someone to love you. Maybe you're waiting for something really important. But you've got to find a way to focus on what you have, not on what you don't have. And thank God for it. Look around at the things around you. And it will not erase the pain or or the longing in the waiting. But what it will do is it will bring you comfort and peace and endurance. And one of the many reasons we have a Father that reminds us when we meet at this table, you do this in remembrance of me. It's a table of gratitude. And number three, remain surrendered. Remain surrendered, which is the whole point, isn't it? Of leaving our prayers in God's hands. It's in that surrender that God can change our hearts. It's when you're staring down at a dried creek bed or a huge mountain of an obstacle in in your path and God has your full attention and you simply respond. God, I'm here. What you want, wherever you want, whomever you want in my life. There's a verse sometimes that we miss many times in Scripture that kind of highlights this in Jesus' ministry. And it comes to us in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. And it comes to us at a critical juncture where everything changes. Matthew 26, 47, it's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says there, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs. Uh, some versions say clubs or uh, swords and sticks. I never quite understood the stick part. But they were sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And the one who handed Jesus over had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. This is the moment they come to arrest Jesus. And the phrase, the one who handed Jesus over, that's the literal Greek. Some translations simply say the betrayer. But literally it says, the one who handed Jesus over. Now here's why this is so critical. It is up until that time, Jesus' whole ministry has been about ministry. It's been about doing. Jesus had been traveling He'd been teaching, he'd been doing miracles, he'd been walking on water, he'd been healing the blind, opening the ears of those that were deaf, loosing the tongue of those that couldn't speak. He was doing, 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 calming storms, feeding thousands. But in this moment when Jesus was handed over, he ceases to be the one doing things and becomes the one to whom things are done. In this one moment when Judas kisses Jesus, it's the instance when Jesus is handed over and Jesus begins to wait. It's in that moment things begin to be done to him. And what's so unbelievable to recognize is that in this season of waiting, his creek dries up. It goes to a trickle and he suffers. And he's pressed and he's nailed to the cross. He prays prayers like, my God, Why have you forsaken me? He's already asked God, is there no other way? But it's in that moment of waiting for the Father's promise to be answered that he comes to his highest and noblest and truest purpose for coming in the first place. As he suffers for each one of us, 
as he brings to us a gift of being covered unconditionally by his grace. It's in that moment, as the Apostle Paul would say in Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You remember that night he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane right before that moment when things flipped from doing to being handed over and done to? He prayed a very simple prayer. Matthew 26, 39, not as I will, but as you will. God, I don't want to be handed over. I don't want to go into the season where I'm not the one doing things. I don't want to have the things known, done to me that are coming. A season of agony a season of loneliness and a sense of abandonment, a season of waiting. But God, I understand. You're great and you're good. And this is not some plan B in reaction to the wickedness of man. This is not plan C once I wasn't able to get people surrounding me in Jerusalem and in the countryside. This has been plan A all along the way. I understand there's a bigger story being written here. And so, Father, I ultimately surrender to you. It's not my will. It's your will be done, what you want. And again, in that moment, he lived out his truest and his deepest purpose. Friends, listen this morning. I know prayer isn't always easy. And I know waiting for God to respond isn't always fun. But one of the most beautiful promises we have is that we will never, ever, Wait alone. He understands. He's been there. And he really is for us. Would you stand with me this morning? And friends, we've got one more week in Psalm 138 before we change the series. But in this this last week as we face going into that time, I'm going to ask that you do some serious work in your heart with your Heavenly Father. Perhaps it begins here today with giving your life to Jesus. Recognizing what he did at the cross at Calvary, the suffering, the enduring, the the waiting, he did it for you. Recognizing perhaps that the, the ministry he had upon this earth, it split time in two, and it's time to split your life in two to a time that you can look back on when you walked in darkness before Christ, but a time you stepped into the light and everything changed because of the grace and the power and the love of Jesus Christ. If you have a decision to make this morning, I'm going to invite you to come, but before you do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, the song has been sung. Would you create in me a clean heart? Father, I just ask that the blood that flowed from Calvary, it saturates all that we are. And it just pushes out the dark stain that sin has caused. The destruction, the damage that it continues to create, the relationships that it continues to poison. Father, those things cannot exist in the light of your glory. You accept every life just as it is. But Father, you never leave it the way that it was. In you, we become new creation and the old is gone because the old us just can't hold the heavenly life you've got planned for each one of us. 
And Father, I, I can't help but believe there's someone here this morning that's not ready for it. They're ready for a new life. They're ready for a fresh start with you. They're ready for the power that you alone can provide through the gift of your Holy Spirit dwelling within them. But it begins with a simple submission and surrender to you. Father, if there are those here this morning that have worn your name but continue to struggle in their own strength, let this be the watershed day where they stop striving. So much has been done to them. But Father, they have yet to humble themselves before you. They've tried to change things. They've employed every strength and maybe every dollar trying to get things better in their life. The one they've never come to is the one that they've pledged their life to. So help them surrender to you today so that this day can truly be a day that we rejoice in holy. And I pray this in Jesus' name.